Welcome to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by someone who is often referred to as the world's foremost authority on hip-hop and whose groundbreaking book on the emergence of hip-hop culture called Black Noise, Rap Music and Black Culture in Contemporary America has defined what is now an entire field of study. Born and raised in Harlem and the Bronx, New York, Professor Trisha Rose is Chancellor's Professor of Africana Studies and the Director of the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America at Brown University. Professor Rose is an internationally respected scholar of post-civil rights era Black U.S. culture, popular music, social issues, gender and sexuality. Her essays on black feminism, systemic racism and other issues can be found in a range of scholarly journals and public venues. She's currently working on a multimedia project called How Systemic Racism Works. I've just watched it on YouTube. I have to highly recommend it. And she is herself not a newbie to the podcast world. Professor Rose is also a co-producer and co-host with Cornell West, who I believe is also Professor Cornell West of the Tightrope podcast, a pandemic podcast on race, love and justice. Professor Trisha Rose, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. So I grew up listening to a lot of American hip hop. You may be surprised to hear. Um, Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) From uh, Immortal Technique to Dead Prez, of course, Tupac and Biggie, uh, Foxy Brown, Lauryn Hill. Um, To me, uh, hip hop was uh, the counter cultural narrative to the shiny white picket fence version of America, which I was ingesting in TV shows, in the Hollywood movies I was watching. And it was almost like peeking through, you know, the underbelly, that the side of America that no one wanted you to know. And once you started listening and actually hearing, you were like, okay, this is America, uh, to mm-hmm. highly plagiarize a, a, a fantastic song. Um, but for those who might not be familiar uh, with the world of hip hop, um, how do you define hip hop? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, hip hop is um for some it's a it's a whole culture that involves graffiti and its origins would be in graffiti and breakdancing and DJ culture and the rhyme and the MC him or herself. Um and for others, you know, it's just really about, you know, the music, right? Which the industry promoted more intensely because music is easier to promote than dance you know, culture or graffiti culture. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it begins in the 1970s in the Bronx for the most part, and it really reflects a whole combination of things. Um, you know, a legacy of, of Afro-diasporic artistic expressions, which include long-form storytelling, lots of call and response, critique of society, 
Um, but it also uh, is very much um, a tradition uh, in, in terms of within hip hop in using technology in ways that were very different than what we had seen previously. Surely all music that is recorded, right? And even the making of brass instruments involve technology. But when you get to hip hop, the use of recorded sound uh, as, as, as a set of uh, fragments of sound and to reconstruct using almost imagining music as a quilt piece, right? Mm -hmm. Where you take fabrics that are already in existence, but you cut them into smaller bits and then you make a, a collage of, of sounds and a collage of images and a collage of narratives. Uh, that's really the first genre to do that so extensively um, and certainly the, the one with the most popular resonance. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's the kind of legacy that hip hop comes from. There's a lot of amazing things about hip hop, both in how it comes into being, its use, its transformation of the use of technology and music, um, and the way it changes what popular music storytelling should sound like. Um, but, you know, that said, there's also a whole lot that is to critique about hip hop. And unfortunately, people tend to do one or the other. They either say it's a horrible scourge on society or on the world, or it's this amazing, unassailable art form that, you know, no one should make a critique about, you know, and I, I really try to avoid those binaries, you know, because, right. you know, they're just not very productive. Um, yeah. And and both are true. <laughs> so you just kind of have to, you know what I mean? You can't lie to yourself about that. And, and so what um, brought you specifically or personally to want to study hip hop? I mean, we, I, we talked a little in the intro about the fact that, you know, before your seminal book, it was almost as if, and this is almost shocking to say where we stand today in 2021, or I'd like to think it would be that hip hop almost wasn't worthy of study, that it wasn't oh. worthy of critical examination. So, so well, what I made mean, you take the I leap? Mean, yeah, I mean, well, a couple things. Uh, it wasn't worthy of study to anybody. That was the assumption. And of course, there's a few reasons for that. I mean, I, I wrote Black Noise, uh, Rap Culture and Black Culture in Contemporary America, which we now must put in grave quotes. Um, note to self, don't do a title with the word contemporary in it, because if your book has any lasting you know, influence at all, it won't be contemporary for long. Um, you know, it, it gets published in 1994. The research for it begins in the mid to late 1980s and spans until about 92, when at that point, you know, the book has to go into production. And so, you know, it's not, it doesn't, it's not like an up to the minute, up to 1994. So that means, you know, it was, it grew out of my dissertation, which meant that I had to go to graduate school first before it became a book. At that point, I mean, hip hop was barely, you know, commercially speaking, you know, maybe eight, nine years old. So it was mm -hmm. so brand new that part of the reason people thought it wasn't, quote, worth talking about was that it was just too new and they didn't understand it. It takes a long time for knowledge and valuable subjects to get to the academy. And also it was popular music, which in and of itself was already sequestered in academic culture into sort of ethnomusicology. And if you didn't do it in ethnomusicology, it pretty much wasn't studied. Um, and then it was black. And so when you put all those things together uh, and it was poor people, black, poor people, it wasn't, you know, sort of, you know, an effort to start a black opera tradition or something, which might have made the New York Times, you know, in 1986 or something like that. So all of those things made hip hop much less, quote, valuable. And then, you know, it, it was um, it was gritty. It was in your face, even before it had commercial viability. 
you know, it was telling stories, as you said in your in your introduction, that, you know, were about a kind of gritty, unexplored, unexposed, unacknowledged life and story of what it meant to be a, a young black and Latinx, because there were lots of Latinx uh, members of the early era, especially um, communities that were just not part of the public acknowledgement. And we didn't have social media and we didn't have, you know, internet. I mean, which is so crazy to believe, but we didn't yeah. have any of that. So it was, you know, was very much like a, like a, like a, a story, almost like a newspaper got dropped off, you know, from another yeah. country and you sort of right. read it to figure out what was going on that that I think that was what struck me you know it was reading uh, a story it was almost like somebody secretly handed you like the real report on America and you were like oh wow this is actually you know for somebody who like as a teenager I'd never been to America I didn't know what America was like it was like suddenly this revelation of what was actually really going on but it the other thing that part of the reason I wanted to ask you what, uh, you know, how you define hip hop was because when I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking about the fact that I, there was so much that I learned through the uh, figures within the hip hop movement, but within what we would call hip hop as music. And I'm thinking, you know, I learned, I learned philosophies, you know, from, from, from Dead Prez and, and the Wu-Tang Clan. And then I learned spiritual perspectives from Nas and Damian Marley. And I learned, you know, so much about um, so many different spheres of life uh, from different hip hop figures. And I, and I almost wonder whether, is there a sense that whiteness has contained within hip hop has contained hip hop to like a musical tradition like entertainment yeah uh, when when maybe there's a lot more to what it really reflects but we just sort of narrow it down to yeah. a musical tradition am i is there is there something no, in no, that no 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 that's entirely true i mean so oh, there's so much to be said, Miriam. I can't see how I'm going to possibly answer that in a short way. Let me let me sort of try to focus in. Um, so um, first, music in Afro-diasporic traditions and, you know, traditions of, of music that comes primarily from at least West Africa are not separate practices from everyday life. So music is embedded in, in, the, in the social world and different modes of musical expression relate to and reflect and comment on society and, and relationships and circumstances. So it's always been this rich conversation, critique, affirmation, you know, spiritual engagement, practice. It was not meant, it was never entertainment for entertainment's sake. So that is true. Uh, and, and you see in the vast majority of, of black modern music in, in the West, and I can't speak to African music, so that's not my specialty. I know a tiny bit. But, um, but certainly everything that happens after the transatlantic slave trade, what African you know, peoples in the new world do is combine various forms of music and culture that had Western origins as well as what they brought with them and created this incredible amalgamation. Um, but what what was always important, if you look at jazz, if you look at the blues, if you listen to gospel, R&B, soul, uh, you know, reggae, uh, you know, the Caribbean black musics, um, you will see uh, a, a continuity of storytelling that is much richer and deeper and more complex than what popular Western mass music has ever been about. So 
that means when those things collide, when black music becomes popular music, right? Now it's under a whole different level of, of, of um, microscope and the pressures to condense it into very simplistic, easily digestible narrative is quite strong. Even more importantly is uh, 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 the layering of what people are expecting to hear. So when you were a teenager listening to early hip hop, because that's early hip hop you're describing, it's not the 90s so much as the early 90s, late 80s you were really talking about. Um, that period, you know, um, was not yet dominated by white consumption. It's really not until near the end of the 90s and through the turn of the 21st century that you begin to get a global dominant non-black audience for hip hop. So when so early on, right, when you still had what's called the golden era of hip hop, which is the second half of the 1980s through the first, you know, maybe five years of the 90s, maybe a little bit less than that. What you have then is whites who are sort of listening in with with that kind of curiosity that you described. Um, now, honestly, you know, black music is always some weird voyeuristic excitement for white consumers, right? So there is this strange repetition across generations where young black, young whites were listening to jazz, right? Which was another word for sex, right? They, you know, that, you know, this idea of like, where's all this, you know, hypersexuality and edgy, you know, alternative black world that I'm going to go pay attention to. Did it with the blues, right? You know, did it with reggae right? This is not new. So that is a ritualized practice that is part of whiteness. That discovery, right? That, that kind of presumed discovery looks like it's breaking down racial barriers, but it's actually a performance of racial barriers, right? Because that transcendence is a particular kind of whiteness, right? It doesn't really break down the binaries for good or break down the segregation for good. It, um, it, um, Hang on a second. Sorry about that. No um, right. It it also yeah. I mean it breaks down. Uh, it it breaks down certain barriers because you learn and you get excited. But then it is a kind of whiteness itself. Do you see what I mean? Because um, it never really transcends it entirely because it can't. Right. And and it can't because of the distance. Is that what the the the, the repetition? Well, it's, it's not just the distance. It's that it's that the terms of the engagement. Um. Are, are often limited to the music itself. So okay, there's not yes. a full-fledged engagement with black life. I right. mean, if you were living, I mean, again, communities are still segregated. You know, Britain is still segregated. France is segregated. You know, America, good Lord, you know, we already know that story. So yeah. most young white kids who are enjoying hip hop and certainly speaking of the era you were describing, which, you know, I was also a younger person then too, um, you know, they listened to hip hop and kind of voyeuristically participated, but they weren't living in the hood for the most part. They for weren't sure. processing legacies of extreme segregation and police brutality and horrible schools. And, you know, they just they just came to listen to the music. So mm -hmm. that's what I mean by you don't you can't really break that down just by listening to the music. Um, yeah. Now you can certainly be more educated, be more empathetic, be more sophisticated. And there's value to that. I don't want to diminish the value, but I think sometimes people get kind of um, overexcited about what they think music is going to do, bring people together, transcend race. And I'm just like, you know, bring it down a notch, everybody. It can only do so much, right? Because people go back, right? They go back right. to their worlds. 
And then they just have a memory of how cool they were as teenagers because they like black music. You know, it's so it's I'm not I'm not, I'm not disparaging you. I mean, I see no, Jason no, no, no. Sudeikis, you know, uh, who's a, a tremendous comedic actor, you know, clearly knows 90 hip hop, 90s hip hop very well. You see it in his comedy. You see it in in Ted Lasso, the amazing show that's on Apple TV this season. And, you know, you watch him on Saturday Night Live. He just hosted it. And you, you hear that hip hop moment. So you say to yourself, OK, so what happened? Right. You you know, like it's not like you're subjected to the hood now. You're just yeah. sort of culturally literate. Does this make sense? Yeah, of course. And actually, one of my questions was about, you know, is it you know, what do you how do you explain this uh, phenomena of, uh, you know, white middle class kids, teenagers, young adults yeah. listening to uh, music which is very clearly invested in concrete struggles for equality uh, right, right. That, 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 you know, how, how do you make sense of people sort of uh, listening to, uh, you know, pain and suffering right. <laughs> and, and calls for uh, change uh, and, and right. there not being a connection to uh, a desire to be invested in that change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first there are definitely, you know, non-black music consumers who love hip hop, who are serious about social change. And, sure. and that would be plenty of white kids, plenty of kids from around the world who have their own local scenes, you know, Brazil, Nigeria, you know, India. I mean, there are all kinds of places, including all kinds of, you know, Ireland, you know, certainly Britain, France has a huge hip hop scene that isn't just I grew up North listening to a lot of it. Yeah, right, right. So it isn't yeah. just North Africans who are doing hip hop. Also, white, you know, kids in France are, are doing hip hop. So, you know, there's there's definitely I don't want to, you know, underestimate the power of a certain kind of political alliance that can emerge from that mm -hmm. deep reading and listening. You went to listen to philosophy, you know, learning about black nationalism, learning, you know, about all the things that were in that golden era of hip hop. But um, at the same time, what generally happens is that when large numbers of whites begin to consume what was a predominantly black located music, they bring the 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 voracious um, sort of uh, chewing up of white industry to the music, right? Just their presence brings the industry with them, right? Right. And and when that industry shows up, it begins to pander to what I would consider the kind of white consciousness, lowest common denominator about blackness. OK. And once that happens, you end up with what I critique all the time, which is commercial mainstream hip hop. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you begin to see now, for example, West Coast gangster hip hop, you know, in the early to mid 90s, had all kinds of social critique. Sure, mm -hmm. it was gangster, so it was, you know, voyeuristic and exciting. But at the same time, it had talked about hunger. It talked about joblessness. Right. It talked about schools pushing kids out. But, you know, as soon as the mainstream society gets a hold of Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eazy-E, right, NWA, you know, uh, the Goody Mob, so on and so forth. Now, the, you know, and eventually Tupac right, and Biggie. Right. All of those stories begin to recede and much more, many more stories that are much more about just violence in general, which is part of that voyeurism, lots more sexism, homophobia and other things become the predominant story. 
And mm-hmm. that becomes that and the hypersexual sort of Southern hip hop, right? Beginning first with Florida and um, two live crew and all of that. That becomes frat music, frat party mm-hmm. music, fraternity music. I don't know if you guys have fraternities. We, we um, don't have fraternities. So for a non-US audience, fraternities would be, well, how would we describe them? University halls? They're, uh, they're like social groups social organizations that are gendered. So the fraternities are all male and the sororities are all female and they're college campus based, but people stay in their fraternities and sororities for their whole lives. But they, the male culture of it is particularly um, aggressively, what we would now call kind of toxically heterosexual masculine, a lot of yeah. partying, a lot of screaming, a lot of getting super drunk, you know, a lot of and hazing. You rape scandals. He's a tremendous. Lady. Right. Exactly. So they yeah. listen to this kind of, you know, voyeuristic music around. They're not, they're not sitting down with dead prez trying to listen on headphones, taking notes. Like I imagine you might've been doing. Right? <laughs> so it's a different kind of consumption. Uh, well, interesting. So on the subject of Dead Press, I was super conscious, and it's one of the questions I wanted to ask you, uh, was about the idea of whether there is some music that maybe isn't for white ears. And I and I say that in the sense that, you know, listening to Dead Press uh, as a white person growing up, I was very conscious of like, this is black music for black people. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm listening in, but I, I you know, careful be careful you know this is not this is not your space like I it's not something I could ever comment on it's not something Mm -hmm. I would ever really have a uh even try and have an opinion on um it just felt like I could listen to it was like overhearing a conversation and so I asked that because because of some of the issues you raised about the way in which you know um you know white listeners have uh, had an impact on the way that uh, hip hop is then marketed, and I guess which artists then get selected, who which ones have careers, right. and what um, they're asked to do, what they're right. what they're allowed to do, and what they're asked to do, um, and then what what those representations then presumably feed into when it comes to stereotypes and wider uh, representations. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, and then, and then I was thinking um, that I, I was combining that with you know a conversation I remember. Uh, is it Tennessee Coates was saying at a, on a campus a few years ago, um, uh, some a student had brought up uh, uh, the fact that she didn't like this is a white college student saying, you know, um, I don't like it when my uh, black friends uh, listen to songs with the N word in it. And, you know, he says to her, you know, well, uh, it's not really your space. You know, you don't get to say who... <laughs> which songs your friends get to listen to because this isn't really your space. And I thought it was a really interesting way, you know, I think one of the aspects of whiteness, of course, and we've touched on it in some previous episodes, is this idea that we think all spaces are our spaces. We belong in all spaces. We have a a right to speak in all spaces. Uh, And I say, I say it with a smile, but uh, really it's not funny at all. It's, it's, it's actually has very serious implications when it comes to uh, conversations that need to be allowed to, to be had in different spaces where we're right. not necessarily present. So is there some music that white people shouldn't be listening to? Well, I read uh, Tenehisi Coates to be saying that it's not for them to decide because it's not meant for them. But I don't think he would say they shouldn't listen to it. I think he would say they shouldn't listen to it with an assumption that it's meant for them. 
at least that's what I that's what I heard. Yeah, because I, 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 I yeah, that's definitely what I what I think he was saying as well. Yeah, yeah, and I, the, why that's important is because of course hip hop wouldn't be what it is without white kids listening to it. I mean, we can't have mm-hmm. a fantasy that hip hop would be this profound influential general you know financially generating creating moguls and you know all kinds of powerful people in relationship to the music um without white consumption so mm-hmm. there is that reality now what he was doing was putting her in check about her bringing that kind of assumption of white privilege right to to the to every space as you pointed out and mm-hmm. i think that is right that doesn't mean people shouldn't listen but I think the best thing I would encourage, you know, white consumers of hip hop to do is to understand that they should think they should really listen, not as consumers, which is what I just called them, but as, you know, people who are really seeking uh, an education and they're and come to it as students, very sort of elementary students of black culture, black life, black oppression, and so on and so forth. Avoid the voyeuristic consumption, avoid the arrogant sense that it's for you. Um, but, you know, if if it's offensive to you, which a lot of it is to me, then mm-hmm. don't listen to that, right? I mean, you don't have to listen to all of it, right? Um, so I guess that's, you know, how I would I would think about it. But it is kind of, it is a lot of arrogance for her to say, the student to say that she doesn't like her friends listening to these other songs. Because, you know, if, if you tease that out, it probably has to do with her not wanting them to say things she can't say. Mm. Right. Because you see, the limit is the N word, right? The the N word yeah. is, is, the, is the borderline. That's basically the no crossing zone. And I well, think I, that's I was, what creates a lot of anxiety. I thought I thought about it in two ways. I thought about it definitely in that way, because I felt like that's definitely what he was also um, hinting at. But I also thought about it like I was trying to think about it for myself and how um, you know, there are songs that I really love because of, you know, whatever the meaning, the beats, whatever it might be that mm-hmm. have the N word in it. And I then feel really uncomfortable personally if it's playing in my head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because your head doesn't your head doesn't censor the words before oh, it. That's right. Know. No, right. So, so then there's the word. And then I'm thinking of Maya Angelou and, you know, the fact that words have power and, you know, they're. Oh, I, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm totally, I don't think the N-word should be used the way it's used in hip-hop. I think that is a terrible mistake. Mm. And I think that it is mostly a destructive outcome. I think it neutral. It, it pretends that it's a term of endearment when it's a term of endearment based on the limited conception that that white supremacy has created. It has. It cannot function even as a form of resistance without already taking for granted the the sort of consciousness of of being a dis- disregarded outsider, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it requires that form of internal internalization, to my mind. So, I mm. think it should be used very sparingly. I think it should be mm. used in very limited contexts. I don't think it should be on records in the way it's on records. I think it's a sign of racism, frankly, that all kinds of other words cannot be on records. Mm. But this word can be under the guise of like, well, it's just a black cultural thing. We don't have any responsibility. And I'm like, well, you made sure they couldn't have guns in videos. You make sure they can't complain about the police and police brutality too explicitly. There's a lot of things you say they can't do. Right. Mm. Um, So so I'm I'm not I'm not pleased with that. Now, that said, I don't want you know, you see, uh, both things can be true. Right. I can say she she doesn't have a right to set that limit. And also, I don't want to hear it either. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
and also you know you probably I guess don't want it, it the ban you don't and presumably you don't want the government to be the one to ban it right you rather that should be something yeah, I don't want the government I want it to be a cultural decision. communities yeah, yeah that's yeah. right I want it to be a cultural guide that's right yeah that's right. because that's a different that's a whole different layer as well if then it's right. like the government right. saying you can't yeah, no I don't want that because <laughs> the things they're going to ban is not going to be the n-word when they get ready to start banning it won't be that <laughs> yeah well yeah and and it, it's always uh, interesting the ones that do get banned and um uh, right. the ones that are allowed to stay um mm -hmm. so I mean in a connected way I wanted we spoke a little bit about how hip-hop has transcended cultures you know I grew up listening to a lot of French hip-hop I'd actually did my undergraduate thesis on uh, French hip hop as the uh, political expression of the French street and, and the extent to which there was, a, mm. uh, you know, in, in, in a society where certain people could not move into formal political spheres, there was this idea that the French suburbs, the French hood was somehow apolitical. And from my clear friendship groups, it was very obvious to me this was completely untrue, that actually people were deeply right. political, deeply invested in these conversations but we're using other mediums to right. express that. And I think, you know, obviously hip hop has offered that vehicle across different cultures. We hear now like, you know, Polish hip hop, we've got, you know, uh, Irish hip hop yeah. and French hip hop and Brazilian, it's everywhere, right? But so when would you say that the line between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation is where where is the line then um you know because some of these cultures might be actually very hostile to uh african-american identity to black identity i mean so where's the line yeah well that is the um you know that's the conundrum of of, of actually being black in the world that we're in right that you are at once this extraordinary model that people are obsessed with imitating and obsessed with the style, culture, sound, and and approach, and and despised and hated at the same time. There's this really amazing passage in I think it's in a, a an essay uh, collection called The World in a Jug, by Ralph Ellison, who's a, a very famous African American novelist, and he talks about um, being on a beach where there where whites are white teenagers are obsessively you know maintaining the beach segregation, not allowing black kids, this is in the, I guess maybe the 60s, to go into the water or be on the white part of the beach, but they're they're blaring from their transistor radios some Stevie Wonder, you know? So like them not grasping the, <laughs> like that is such a profound um, dynamic. So what I think of it is that it is one of the core features of the, of, of the racial construct, right? of of whiteness and of the, what it understands about blackness and mm -hmm. so to draw the line between appreciation and appropriation is a very hard line to draw because frequently they're simultaneously going on um mm -hmm. and um that. yeah say that again we don't often hear that that it's both that sometimes it's maybe a very confused both Happening yeah, yeah no, absolutely. No, I think it is. I think now sometimes it's just appropriation and it's ignorant yeah. and sometimes it's all appreciation. And I think some of the time it's some combination. Mm. And I think, you know, the, the thing is that most people don't have enough racial literacy. That's why your podcast is so cool and so important, because you don't get racial literacy about blackness unless you understand whiteness properly. 
Mm. You just can't, you can't, they, they are, they are deeply related unless you're black, in which case you have to know whiteness to survive. Right. Right. Whites don't have to know about blackness to survive. In fact, the less they know, the better off they do Mm. Um, because they're not confronted with the conflict of, of of the fiction that they've been told and the reality that they are now uh, addressing. But for black people, they already have both of those sides of the puzzle um, because you have to, you know, for the most part. So, yeah, that that I think I think, um, you know, the line is not easy to to find 100 percent. But I think one of the things that moves you from appropriation toward appreciation is a much greater in-depth understanding of of what it means to be black, black history, culture, so on and so forth. The more you know that, the Mm. the better off you'll be. You won't need all these guides. There won't be all this angst. You know, should I listen to this? Should I listen to that? You'll, You'll figure it out really quickly, right? It's really not that hard. It's only hard when you live in an entirely white universe. And you have no consciousness about what whiteness actually means in that universe. And then you just stumble upon something randomly black and you have no idea how it dropped down into your universe, which is what happens in my country all the time. Yeah. So that the more, you know, the, the easier it is to draw that distinction. Well, and we, we've had a scandal here recently. Um, I don't know if you know uh, Jesse Nelson, who was uh, part of a group called Little Mix, who uh, did a song recently uh, with Nicki Minaj called Boys, which was very controversial here because she's been accused of uh, of blackfishing. She looks uh, a lot. She's white. She looks very um, tanned, to put it mildly, in the mm-hmm. video. Um, her, her style, she's uh, wearing grills, like there's a whole look going on that doesn't seem to like fit. Like minstrelsy, basically. Yes, like minstrelsy. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the the big conversation, I guess, that's been happening here, and I've been, a lot of the articles that I've been reading are saying, you know, why why is it that there is like a love for um and actually i would i would question i'm going to say black bodies but without black people this is what i've been reading we we like black bodies Mm. without black people but i also want to ask you what you think of that argument because part of me feels like it's actually just like a very particular version of black bodies because i also Mm. feel like that puts a lot of pressure on black women who look in a lot of different ways who have all different kinds of bodies and then we're like oh it's you know it's it's black it's we want black bodies without black people but then i'm like well hold on is there a is there one type of black body so sorry Mm. i've thrown a whole lot of stuff at you but i'm just yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) trying to figure out i guess whether what you make of this argument of you know is it that popular culture likes quote unquote black bodies without black people um and is there such a thing yeah well the way i would get out of that tension um um is is to to not use the phrase bodies per se or the black bodies as a phrase um but but to to really um use the definition that's underneath it rather than the phrase because the phrase is confusing what's underneath it is the notion that a kind of uh, in uh, a, a a physical representation of blackness that's very specific mm. is what people want. They want a performance of a certain kind of image of blackness. They don't want people who are black because when you have full fledged people, now you've got to deal with all their contradictions and all their suffering and all of their rage and uh, you know um, all kinds of things that aren't really for you, right? Right. Whereas Whereas the notion of black bodies is not just a disembodied body, but 
but it's meant to signal a performance of a set of racial ideas, mm. right? So you're performing a set of racial ideas and, in, and that takes place in the form of a body, right? Something that is just physically, symbolically black. And so mm -hmm. right, and that can be a lot of different things. There's more than one kind of blackness that is visually um, consumed and stereotyped. There's there's numbers of them. There are, you know, there's a handful of tropes that are very common, but there are definitely more than more than one. Mm. Okay, so that then that makes a lot of sense. So then basically it's like we're we're reproducing caricatures. Um, For sure. Right. Yeah, that, and that's that's right. the idea. Right, because um, that's where that's where authenticity comes from, right? In hip hop, right? Which is that hip hop that seems authentic is when it's the most representative of the expected performance of blackness, right? That people have and and these expectations, right? Now, it used to be authenticity in hip hop would have been more like what happened in the golden era, you know, where you have lots of political and social and cultural and fun and party. That was authentic hip hop. But as mm -hmm. it becomes commercialized more and more and the audience and the, the consumer as an audience begins to dictate through sales and interest what constitutes authentic hip hop, that becomes more and more a kind of voyeuristic fantasy about this kind of ghetto criminal gangster street culture for the boys and for hypersexual female street culture, stripper culture, and so on for the girls. And, you know, queer people for a long, long time were not in, even in any way visible in hip hop. That's changing, mm -hmm. which is great. But, but the point is that that kind of hypersexual, hyperviolent set of tropes become authentic hip hop once it becomes commercialized. So if you are sophisticated and you're trying to use jazz samples and you're critiquing and, you know, politics and you're mentioning Paul Robeson, you're not authentic black. You're trying to be cool. You're trying to be something else. But if you're truly down, right, you're just going to keep it hood and street. Well, that's just, so that's just like that whole body fantasy we were just talking about, you know, turning into um, a description of what constitutes the real. So it's this crazy, it's like a looking glass. You know, mm -hmm. you, you find yourself in the media tell, and people telling you this is authentically black um, when it's really based on, on not black people, but a very narrow slice of a stereotypical experience, which some people have. I'm not saying it isn't a one of, of a range of things we experience, but it's not the authentic piece of blackness, right? It's not black in itself. It's actually a sign of what whites have done to black people more than anything else. So could we say that's like whiteness is representation of blackness? It it relies on it for sure. It's not all that's in there because there's also incredible creativity in there and there's black cultural traditions in there. But yeah. when it when it was so narrowly, because basically an argument I make in my second book on hip hop, which is called Hip Hop Wars, is yeah. that as that the, the greatest irony of hip hop is that the more power it has in the market, so say it goes from being a kind of small slice of, of the record industry to this massive international juggernaut, superseding country, which was the biggest genre, you know, forever. And the more space it takes up in the market, the narrower the images are that we get in the mainstream radio play. Mm. Why? Why? Why does its greatest economic power require its most narrow, uninventive, you know, tropes about life in, in this genre. That is to say, cars, B-words, 
hoes, you know, guns, grills, mm. you know, and that's pretty much drugs. That's all it is. I mean, mm. that's pretty much all it is. It's an unbelievable, you know, I mean, if you turn, I could turn on the radio right now at, mm. any, at any point and 80 to 90% of what I'm going to hear is in this narrow slice. And yet look at this economic power. Wouldn't you think that this much audience with this much power would mean there'd be more flourishing diversity of storytelling? How did we go from this wide storytelling when it was this powerful economically to the yeah. river, right? That to me is where you really get at what's happening. Mm, that's really interesting. And, and so, yeah, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about the impact of whiteness on hip hop, then the narrowing of like the permissibility of representations of hip hop sounds like a good place to start. Right. Yeah. And what uh, do people want to see? They want to mm -hmm. see Rick Ross with a whole bunch of tats and no shirt on and 99 gold chains on the cover of Rolling Stone. Please no. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. I'm like, who came up with this idea? I'm like, you know, but just the idea. I mean, you know, it's like a creepy kind of Mandingo, you know, yeah. warrior slash stereotype. I mean, it's really, if you know anything about black images across time, you know, there's no way these things aren't conjured by that. And yet they just do it like, oh, I have an idea. Let's put Rick yeah. Ross on the I'm like, who came up with that? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's crazy. And then there's obviously a few people that stand out maybe as, I don't know if you would agree as challenging it. Or would you say someone like Childish Gambino does a lot mm -hmm. to sort of challenge representations, whether it's in like his TV series or in his music? There's a lot that seems to uh, yeah. very deliberately flout mm -hmm. those expectations. Yeah, yeah. Childish Gambino, Danny Glover is, is very... Um, very uh, you know, creative and terrific. I think there are actually a number of artists who straddle these lines in in really interesting ways. Mm. Um, but he's not selling a huge number of records. Let's just be clear. Yeah, I guess relative, I mean, he's not the Migos, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean now Drake is interesting because he sells an, an unbelievable number of records. Yes. Um, but he's and but his narrow his storytelling frame is relatively narrow, but it's not as narrow as what I was suggesting. So I, I'm mm -hmm. not I'm not saying there are not going to be interesting exceptions. Yeah. But what you're not going to have is some you know this band that is the 80 90 percent of what you get being about feminism, being about love, being yeah. about you know really a a real clear critique of of racism in America, not just a sort of indirect phrase here or there. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, I uh, could definitely go on, but I realize that we need to head over to our quick fire round, if that's okay. okay. Um, before we do that, I did want to ask you, uh, because you've got this fantastic lecture, which I did listen to the virtual lecture uh, on mm -hmm. uh, systemic racism. Um, and in that, I wanted to ask you, uh, do you, are systemic racism and whiteness the same thing? No but they are yeah. incredibly good uh, cousins. They're very close cousins. Mm. Systemic racism relies on the practice and power of white supremacy, not whiteness in and of itself, but white supremacy, which is a, a, a powerful, a, 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 pow a structure of power based on race, right? Mm -hmm. Whiteness is a category that is invoked to, to produce that power, but it's not the same thing as that power. Mm. So white supremacy is, uh, you know, a, a very, very uh, close cousin uh, to systemic racism. That is to say, you need to produce in order for white supremacy to work effectively and efficiently across centuries. 
yeah. you have to institutionalize and create mechanisms of systems that reproduce that value, that that power, that invisibility, uh, that normalcy, and also continually reproduces that disadvantage, that normalcy of, of in, inequality and so on and so forth. So yes, mm -hmm. they are related. They have to be connected to work, but they're not equivalent to one another. And um, um, I we sometimes think of whiteness as like the lubricant for white for systemic racism, mm -hmm. in that it I don't know <laughs> maybe that's a bit crude, but um, just in in that it, it sort of offers the uh, often the the ideological justifications and the sort of frameworks mm -hmm. of understanding yeah. that shape as normal abnormal. Yeah things um, definitely no it is it is the it is the ideological framework that renders it invisible right it calls it something else right it's like well i don't know why black people all live in these things called ghettos it's just it's unfortunate it's just a terrible thing i i i just don't have any idea i'm like well i can tell you why and then just a perpetual refusal to know right they just sort of like really oh my god really and then they go back right to everyday life so you're right there's the performance of a kind of ideological structure that whiteness produces yeah. has to be significantly disrupted in order for, for systemic racism to end. Yeah. And you say in your lecture, there's this um, uh, stat that stayed with me that, um, you know, a lot significant majorities of white Americans basically believe that racial equality has either been achieved or very close to being achieved. I think it was 61 percent think uh, it's been achieved and another 21 percent think it's around the corner. Yeah. Um, you know, for That's those who 80%. are wondering, yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. I'm like, what world are they in? Yeah, mm. and 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 you you ask actually, how can we shift this con consciousness, which is an an impediment to fighting structural racism? Um, mm -hmm. How uh, you know? How do you? What do you think are the most effective ways of shifting that right. consciousness? So you know, I. So I, I'm actually writing, I'm both doing a multimedia project, but I'm writing a book on this, which I'm hopeful will be out in a year and a half or so. So um, right. I'm right in the midst of it now. Um, and I have a really clear answer. I hope it's clear to that question. And that is that um, I don't think we can really uh, sort of interrupt structural or systemic racism just by thinking that it's a that racism is a is a is a negative attitude or a personal negative belief, right? Um, because racism is a fundamental core of the structure of whiteness as we've produced it as a world. The world has produced whiteness in a way that requires it to do certain kinds of racial work, and that mm -hmm. racial work is racism, along with some other things. But that's one of the things it does. But it does it through through a, a profound um, uh, by producing a veil for whites. They don't see it. You know, of course, they're hostile, evil people. And the whole Trump era definitely reminded me that there are a little bit many. There are a few more of them than I thought. You know, yeah. I thought we were down to 10 percent, but I think we're probably closer to 25, 30. But yeah. let's talk about the other 70 percent of white. Right. People, right. There, many of them have no idea how the world is structured. So the answer to me is not to start with, oh, you have white privilege, we're going to, you know, educate you on privilege, but to really break down the infrastructure. Say, so look, here's actually how you move through the world. Mm. Here's what's happened to allow you to move through the world this way. Here are the economic benefits, here are the social benefits, here are the invisible uh, 
uh, uh, advantages that are really about things that are just simply not happening to you. Sometimes an advantage is about not necessarily only having a tremendous amount of well, you know, median wealth that's much higher than any other group, but it's yeah. also about not being assaulted in the street by police and not being targeted all the time so that the weed that's in your trunk gets seen, right, as much as someone else's. So mm-hmm. it's really showing this huge infrastructure. Well, how, why do you have more health? Why do you have more wealth? Why yeah. is it that your schools, even when you're working class, are better? Why is it so on and so forth, right? So my answer is, and it's, it's, it's naive in its own way, I will confess, but if, if people could see this structure and mm. really d- connect the dots, and mm-hmm. as I try to show in the, in the lecture, sort of see how one form of inequality and racism connects and interlocks with others, yeah. then they'll see it's bigger than they are. Right. So mm. systemic racism is bigger than you. It's bigger than me, but it has us mm. locked in its gears. Right. And so I think there's a moment that that realization produces, which is a potential form of radical solidarity. That that allows whites to do something else with whiteness, mm. not just perform in diversity and inclusion and pretending not to see race and all this shenanigans. Yeah. But to say, look, if we, if you're serious, let's rebuild this thing. Mm. And and that creates enough distance, right? Because what systems thinking allows you to do is look at it and you're like, oh, wow, this is way bigger than me. Yeah. So let me, you know, then, then we don't get all caught up in ang- anxiety. Oh, am I really a racist? Am I not a racist? Should I use yeah. the N-word? I'm just like, you know, really? They're wearing me out with this. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm like, let's get down to the concrete situation. Um, yeah. So that's that's how I approach it. That's what my work that I'm working on now is really aiming to do. Okay. Well, we very much look forward to reading that book uh, when it's done. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. The 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 quick fire round, if I may. Um, yeah. What is your definition of whiteness? Whiteness is um, an invented category for a select group of people to maintain, hoard, and deny advantage. What is the root of racism? There's more than one root. Um, whew, these are, this is way too big for a quick fire round there. <laughs> uh, the root of racism <laughs> is the, is the, cat- like keep the simple. <laughs> you, yeah, I see. I see. Um, the root of racism is, um, as a system, is colonialism. What is the most powerful way to resist whiteness? Who? Uh, other White people or non-white people? Well, nice uh, try. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so I, I, it's sort of, it's sort of implied in there that maybe there's a distinction necessary. So, yeah, feel free if there's, if, if you see, I guess, okay. uh, I guess um, people um, who are excluded from whiteness are having to resist it every day by virtue of their yeah. existence. But maybe for right. people who racialize as white, then what's the most powerful way to resist whiteness? Radical solidarity with non-whiteness, not in words, but in l- live choices. Sell education and practice. What's your favorite hip hop album of all time and why? Who Lord have mercy. You know uh, <laughs> how many times I get asked that question. Um, I bet. <laughs> um, I can only have one. Eric B and Rakim, um, the paid in full album. 
um, because Rakim is the best MC of all time in my mind. Uh, I know there's a battle over this in, in the world. I'm not prepared to, to engage in that fight. Um, but so there, there, there's that. And then there's the, 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 um, the, the muddiness and the grittiness of the beats. They, they feel like they were done in some sort of abandoned building in a basement, in a bunker somewhere. And just that texture um, and of course the rhymes. So I, I would have to go with paid in full, Eric B and Rakim. Um, is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? I don't think a raceless wor world is achievable or desirable, but a world where race is not a fundamental source of oppression and extensive privilege is because we're going to, we're going to be different. You know, we're going to look different. We're going to be different colors. We're going to have different hair. We're going to have different sizes, different everything. So that's going to happen. So the issue is not getting rid of difference. It's what difference difference makes. That's what we have to work on. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes. yes. Uh, whiteness, I mean, you, yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> That's a nice short answer. That's my shortest answer of the day. <laughs> yes, well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Trisha Rose. It's been wonderful uh, speaking with you. If people want to connect with your work, uh, they want to read more about your ideas, is there somewhere you'd like to refer them to? Yes, thank you so much for asking that. So probably the most efficient thing is to go to my website, which is www.trisharose.com. But I'm also on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook too much, so don't waste your time over there. Um, but I'm on Instagram and I'm on uh, Twitter and I write, you know, I respond best I can. And uh, so between those and my website, there's plenty to find. And I also have a YouTube channel, but if you go to my website, you'll find all those things. Fantastic. And presumably people can purchase your books maybe off yes, uh, you can purchase through the website. Unfortunately, it does link out to Amazon. But if you want to go to a local bookstore, I have three books out now which are, that are still in print, which is Black Noise, The Hip Hop Wars and Longing to Tell, which is an oral history of black women's sexuality. So I hope you find them. If you do, you know, I hope you enjoy them. And, and uh, I'd love to hear from all your, your listeners. I know you have a great, really interesting audience. So I'm excited to hear from them. Thank you so much. Well, uh, that leaves me just to thank you once uh, finally for taking the time to speak with us today. I want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. <laughs>